Dotnet Rocks episode 704 with guest Philip Loriano. Recorded live Friday, September 9th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell here for your .NET enjoyment for the next hour or so. What's up, Mr. Campbell? Well, you know, I'm paddling hard, so I must be getting somewhere. <laughs> All right. I'm, uh, what am I doing? Uh, there's not much. It's a beautiful day here. We're uh, recording this uh, one day before I leave for build. Hey, let's, I'm leaving for build tomorrow, too. Yeah, should be fun. Yeah. Going to have an epic party at Mr. Tim Huckabee's house beforehand. That should be good. And uh, somewhere in there, we're going to record show 700. Yeah, I think we are. At at the party? I presume we will. They, yeah. Of course, by the time people hear this, the 700 will already be published. Right. But that's that was four people. shows ago. Yeah. So it really doesn't matter what we say. <laughs> All we know is it was great. It was a great party. <laughs> I love time shifting. All right, let's uh, get into Better Know Framework here. All right, so what do you got? Well, I've been talking about HTML5 tags, and I thought I would find another uh, confusing one here. Nice. Seems like they're reinventing the wheel or redefining, you know, what uh, data is. There's a lot of, you know, microdata tags. Mm-hmm. So nav is a tag, N-A-V, that's supported in all five major browsers. And in between a nav and a slash nav, you basically have anchor links. You basically have links. Okay. The idea is that a collection of links goes between those. Uh, the nav tag. The nav tags. So the nav tag doesn't actually have any visual element or anything. This is purely about markup. There is a little weirdness going on with there. The original spec originally read, the nav element represents a section of a page that links to other pages or to parts within the page. A section with navigation links. Not all groups of links on a page need be in a nav element. Mm-hmm. Only sections that consist of primary navigation blocks are appropriate for the nav element. And primary navigation blocks is ambiguous too. A page may have two nav blocks. The first right. is a site-wide navigation, a primary navigation within page links. Example, like a table of contents, which many would term a secondary nav. And because of the use of the phrase primary navigation block in the spec, the developer might think that his or her secondary nav should not use a nav element. So it's it's kind of strange. Like all things HTML5, you know, it takes a little bit of research to figure out what the heck they're talking about. But, but it also seems like they're kind of just leaving it open to see how people actually use it. Yeah, it does seem that way. I mm-hmm. mean, it, they, they're maybe being purposely vague in the spec. Yeah. Oh, well. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a message off of show 669 a ways back. That was David Nielsen talking about cloud development. Uh-huh. I don't know if you remember, but David also talked about this uh, acronym AWESOME, on-demand, self-service, scalable, measurable as a definition of cloud. Right. And uh, Vidar Kongsley sent us a message saying, Hi, guys. Thanks for a great show. I particularly like this episode, an interesting topic and an interesting conversation. Interesting that you touched on platform as a service versus infrastructure as a service regarding Azure. I've worked a little on Azure myself, and the way I see it is that infrastructure as a service type services that are offered in Azure should first and foremost be used in migration scenarios. They are good tools if you want to move your application to the cloud, but cannot afford to re-architect it to fit into the cloud in one big bang. And and, and that's a valid point because when you think infrastructure of a service, you're and it's actually exactly what Vidar goes on to say. Take for instance the virtual machine role. It's a powerful tool, but like was mentioned in the episode, if you go in that uh, infrastructure as a service direction, you might as well go to EC2 and not Azure. However, I think that virtual machine roles really shine if they are used as a temporary solution. Basically, move your current server to the cloud pretty much as is right away, and in the long run, re-architect it to fit with the platform as a service offerings in Azure when you're doing the changes to it anyway. 
And, it, and you know, I've been doing so much cloud work these days. This is absolutely near to my dear to my heart. It's, I consider infrastructure as a service are the lowest common denominator, right? This is the the path of least effort and last resort because it gives you the fewest benefits of the cloud. Right. If you're using infrastructure as a service, you're responsible for failover. You're responsible for all reliability. Heck, you're responsible for operating system updates and everything. Mm-hmm. When you go to platform as a service, you get rid of a lot of that stuff. You know, a lot of that just comes automatically. And then sort of the highest level, you know, platform as a service looks like Azure with all of those app fabric and things like that, as opposed to software as a service, which is, you know, Office 365, where I don't even care. I don't touch the machine at all. I don't, you know, look at the operating system. I don't need to deal with any of that. I just get my mail. It just works. Right. So, you know, in a perfect world, you're buying everything software as a service and just paying for what you use. And then when you get into your own apps, you drop down to a platform as a service so that you have these services in the cloud. So, yeah, I guess I have to agree with you, Vidar. That's a shame. But I'll send you a mug anyway. Sure. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> and if you've got comments on shows you've listened to on .NET Rocks, go to the .NET Rocks.com site and write a comment. And if we read it on a show, we will send you a mug. Yeah. And while you're at it, buy my album. <laughs> how's that going my friend oh, it's going well actually nine five-star reviews on amazon.com the album's called lifeboat to nowhere jay and i my brother have been working on it for 10 years and you can get a copy at franklinbros.com nice yeah i know why it's got five-star reviews it's really good music it's really good yeah, yeah. it's awesome well uh i'm very excited because our guest today is philip Loriano. And Philip is the author of LinFu, an open source framework for implementing AOP design by contract, dynamic proxies, mix-ins, inversion of control, and universal event handling on the CLR. He is also the author of Hero, H-I-R-O, the world's first and fastest IOC container that is written in pure IL. In his spare time, you can usually find Philip hacking his own compiler and implementing the CLR metadata specifications for fun. Philip has been professionally writing software in general since 1999 and coding in IL since 2005. Philip currently works as a senior developer for Redify, an IT consulting company based in Australia. Philip Laureano, welcome to Donnie Rocks. Thanks for having me. And thanks for being here. And uh, okay, so when you say that it's written in pure IL, you write it in a language. You don't write it in IL, do you? I wrote the compiler. The the thing about Hero is that the container itself is actually uh, generated in IL, but the framework that was that actually creates the container is written in C sharp. So you actually write intermediate language by hand. Yeah. Hmm. You can say that. That's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I've, I've had an opportunity to sit and have a couple of drinks with Philip, and he's crazy. <laughs> I know for sure. <laughs> Philip, that's a little wacky. <laughs> Why? Now, okay, so what possible benefit can we get from uh, by, by doing that other than a really, really intimate knowledge of um, of how the CLR works? Well, the first benefit that you get is just pure speed. Um, a lot of the times, you, your average compiler does a, a lot of um, things that are, are quite unnecessary. And most of the time, especially for IOC containers, all you really need to have is a constructor call. So, uh, speed, are you running on a 386? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm still not over the crazy part. <laughs> you know, I always get those blank stares. I mean, I remember NDC, at the end of the session, I just said, uh, so does anybody have any questions? And, and the audience just looked at me like this with this blank stare. Yeah. You crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. No, and it's impressive. Even crazy. the JetBrains people are calling me certifiable, so that's pretty bad. There you go. Uh, but yeah. it's an impressive kind of crazy, you know? I mean, damn. Yeah, once Hattie Hariri thinks you're crazy, you are crazy. Because, you know, IL is the assembly language of .NET. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, it can be almost as readable sometimes. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, I've got some interesting hobbies. Let's just put it that way. 
Well, and you know, it was more common to mess around in IL in the early days of .NET. Well, and mostly because we wanted to understand what was really going on. Exactly. There. there was that sort of mistrust of this whole managed environment. And so you were going down and looking to see what it was doing. And after a while, you, you sort of gave up and recognized, okay, it's smarter than me. I'm going to leave it alone. But apparently, it's not smarter than Phil. <laughs> well, the thing about IL is that it, it's it's, despite the odd syntax, it's pretty much on par with what C-sharp 1 or C-sharp 2.0 would be without the lambdas. Mm. Um, it has basically all the features that you would expect out of a .NET language, but it has none of the restrictions. And what scares a lot of people is that it has none of the safety. Yeah, if you mess up, you really messed up. Oh, yeah, it punishes you hard. Now, I mean, I remember hard punishment in the win three days. Hard punishment was the machine is hung and you have to restart it and try and figure out what happened. What's hard punishment when you mess up an IL? Oh, you just, your running instance doesn't even run. Uh, the verifier just chokes and you're pretty much trying to scratch your head trying to figure out what went wrong you should and you're saying to yourself you know i could really use a compiler right now (laughs) (laughs) i think i'll write one (laughs) you know it'd be fun so all right so uh let's get into um metaprogramming a a little bit so why should i care about metaprogramming what is it well metaprogramming is pro it's this idea that you have programs that could change other programs. Um, basically, this is a way for you to make changes across your entire application that would be quite tedious to do if you were to do it by hand. Uh, one example, a classic example is AOP, where you've got all these changes in so many different places that if you were to edit this stuff by hand, it would take you a long, long time to do. Yeah. And another example of um, metaprogramming is what Ruby implicitly does in its Rails framework. A lot of the conventions that it does are accomplished solely through metaprogramming. It's this ability to discover and read into your model so that it could generate the code necessary to glue everything together. You know, there, then there's always self-healing code, you know, code that, you know, figures out where it's going wrong and actually fixes itself, which is a scary thing. Well, I haven't gotten there yet, though, but give me time. Well, there's hope. <laughs> there's something to look forward to in your old age, Philip. Yeah, I can solve the self-healing <laughs> problem. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. So techniques for... um uh, metaprogramming in .NET. I know that uh, new version of C Sharp has got some uh, code that writes code features, giving you access to that compiler level. Um, what uh, what kinds of uh, you probably just rewrite the IL yourself? But what uh, what do mere mortals do? Well, for mere mortals, what I started off with was Codom. And uh, if you're not familiar with CodeDOM, it's basically the same model that Visual Studio uses to generate all your wind forms, all your your web forms. And it's this idea where you have this abstract syntax tree that represents code. And based on that abstract syntax tree, you could create an entire program regardless of whatever language it is. Because mm. nowadays... Codom has support for multiple languages outside of even VB or C sharp. So pretty much, I think, I think even Iron Ruby, Iron Python might even have their own, um, Codom provider. So if you're, if you want to experiment or just get your feet wet, Codom is probably the easiest way to do it without having to actually look at IL or deal with IL. Okay. Tell us about LinFu. Well, LinFu was one of my pet projects back in 2007. And 
it was this idea where you've got a platform, which is a CLR, that is supposed to be language independent. And you've got all these different language features. But the problem was that even though the platform itself was language independent, each one of these languages, you couldn't take one language feature from one language and share it with another language. So Linfu was this idea of, hey, since the IL that all this stuff compiles to is language independent, why don't I just write the features in IL so that I could use all these features like aspect-oriented programming, duct typing, design by contract, even AOP, so that I could use these features from any language that I want, past, present, or future. And that's where the naming for Linfu actually came from. It's abbreviation for language independent features underneath .NET. So Linfu. Hmm. And um, you've used other aspect-oriented programming tools before, I'm sure. What sets Linfu uh, apart? Well, Linfu is a little bit more lightweight. Um, it's also open source. So if, if you're broke like me, uh, you don't need to write a framework. You can just use mine. Okay. Good, uh, good idea. The other thing is that with Linfu, the bigger difference is that it's a runtime uh, AOP framework. So you, you could put in these hooks at compile time. And then at runtime, you could do things that would be easier to do since you don't have to worry so much about the post build process, throwing everything in at, at compile time. Um, I know a lot of other frameworks out there. What they do is they do a static AOP setup where they throw everything in, but there are certain things like security that you won't be able to bake into the application, even with AOP, if you can only change the program at post-build and not at runtime. So, Because if you can change it at runtime, it's pretty easy to do anything you want. And that's what Linfu allows you to do. Yeah, aren't there consequences to performance when you do that? Um, in general, no. Hmm. The reason why there is no consequence to performance is Linfu is set so that everything is turned off. So it's only when you need that particular ability to change behavior that you're going to have an impact. Yeah, and Linfu is is pretty um, customizable to the point where you could attach specific behaviors to specific object instances. Um, it's it's this two tier approach where you could apply behavior to an entire class, or you could apply a specific behavior to a particular instance of that class. And that's something that you, you can do at runtime that you can't do at compile time. Because obviously, when you're compiling something, you don't know how many object instances are going to be fired up right. by the CLR once you actually run it. Right. There are some uh, features that you have listed here that uh, we should probably define, uh, such as duck typing, mix-ins. What are those things? What's duck typing? It's the ability to make a call against any given object as long as it conforms to a specific interface. So this is sort of the dynamic idea of if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck and quacks like a duck. Is that the idea? It looks like an integer, so it, we're going to call it an integer. But the interesting thing about um, duck typing, at least with Linfu, is that it's it maps it to an interface. So there are some pretty interesting uses for what I call static duck typing. Um, one of them is that you could actually... Uh, extend classes that you don't own. Like, for example, if I have an iFoo interface with a do-something method and you have a sealed class that has a do-something method, you could actually map that do-something method to that iFoo interface, even though it doesn't actually implement that interface. All right. 
So you get to extend objects that you would not normally be able to touch. Oh, that's one thing. Um, and it comes in handy if you want to reuse existing functionality that would be other- otherwise take you quite a while to do, maybe an ORM or uh, maybe back in the old days when you when you were we were still stuck with link to SQL and you wanted to say use another provider, you could do that. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework to free agile management tools and content management systems, all of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Doesn't the DLR, the dynamic language runtime, sort of do some of this stuff? Well, the DLR is, is a, basically an abstraction on top of the CLR, which is a bunch of these abstract syntax trees. And in theory, it can do the same thing, but as far as syntax goes, you're pretty much tied to whatever language that's built on top of it. So if you really wanted to use duck typing, then you just have to switch over to either Ruby or Iron Python in order to do it. And that might not be feasible in most cases, especially if you're not really going to use uh, Ruby or Python for anything else. So the idea is with ALP, you can use C-sharp, VBNet, whatever language you like, and it just works. Pretty much. And you get the duck typing features. Yeah, and that, that was the whole idea behind LinFu, because I, I, I saw all these cool features, but why do I have to jump to another language to use it? Right. And uh, mix-ins, what's a mix-in? Well, a mix-in is this idea where I could, I could change classes at runtime. Like in the old days, we used to have dynamic property bags mm-hmm. or that were stuck in these dictionaries. And before, say, the dynamic keyword, you really couldn't access these these property bags outside of an ugly syntax. But now that we have the dynamic keyword, what's missing is the ability to start adding more properties. And like if I had a property bag, I had a foo property how are you going to put that in at runtime or how do you put that in as the program changes? Mixins are this, is this idea that I could take a whole bunch of responsibilities together and mix them in so that they could become something even more useful. Actually, the word mixins um, comes from, I think it comes from ice cream. Yeah. Yeah. Steve's was the original mixin. Do you remember Steve's ice cream? I think it was Steve's. Richard, do you have that in Canada? No, we don't have ice cream in Canada. It's just <laughs> we just go outside. Yes, yeah, we just go outside <laughs> with a glass of milk and some sugar. Just throw it up in the air. It lands ice cream. <laughs> um, well, anyway, so here on the east coast of America, anyway, we had these Steve's. Uh, they were sort of paired with D'Angelo's, but they were the original mix-in. Um, and then, of course. Dairy Queen was doing their blizzards and McDonald's has the McFlurry and anything that sounds like blizzard, basically, you know, you, you've got it. You've got the concept. Take some Oreos and dump them in an ice cream thing and stir it up. Well, more ice cream is always a good thing. I totally agree. <laughs> so we got from duck typing to ice cream in five minutes. That's great. I just want to take a step back here because really what you're talking about, Philip, is is making changes to a language. And I'm wrestling with when is that a good idea? 
Because it's, it's a very meta way to think. Like most of the time, if I'm having trouble getting something done, it's because I don't understand the language I have in front of me already. And changing the language just sounds like uh, rather than understand this language, I'm going to make it work the way I want it to work. Well, the thing about this, it, it's, it could be a philosophical question. Yes. You could ask yourself, is the language supposed to serve me or am I supposed to follow the language? Mm. Um, and if, if you go by the mindset that I'm just supposed to work within the language, then you're going to have, depending on which language is merciful at the time, you're pretty much have to do some crazy workarounds in order to get the job done. A classic example again, which would be AOP. Right. I mean, you could work without AOP, but it's going to be that much harder for you to actually keep things clean and keep your application in a sane state without pasting all this stuff around. Right. If you were to go by this idea that you have to work within the language, then what are you going to do about the thousands of things that you have cluttered across your application? You're talking about cut and paste like it's a bad thing. Oh, of course. <laughs> but, I mean, that's your point is that there's certain behaviors that once you find yourself doing them, you're now fighting the language. Yeah. And and a lot of the times you don't have the option of switching languages. Right. It's not like one of these pet projects that you might have at home where you could pick whatever language you want. Uh most of the time, I think we're on .NET, we're either stuck with C-sharp, VB.NET, or, and if you're lucky, F-sharp, or Iron Ruby, or Iron Python. If you're lucky? If you're lucky. Well, all right. Well, the, the thing about that is, once you're in these languages, you could certainly work within them, but you're pretty much at the mercy of the language authors and when, whenever they decide to make these changes. Yeah. So, it no longer becomes you getting the compiler to do what you want. But now you got to work within the rules of the compiler just to do things that would normally be quite simple in other languages. Mm -hmm. So I, I got a scenario here. When things go wrong in C sharp, the compiler tells you fairly nicely and in fairly good detail what exactly happened. If you've got, um, let's say you're, you're doing a mix in or you're, you've got a, a duck typed, variable here you you're you're modifying some object out there and you're adding methods to it and something goes wrong there what do you get do you as the linfu author have to sort of take on a compiler role at that point and provide a you know a call stack to the to the programmer as an exception um do you do that nicely does the compiler help you out like whose responsibility is it to take care of those things well, whenever you run into a case where you have problems with mix-ins, this is still a program that runs on the CLR, so you'll still be able to see the stack trace and the debugger. Of course, with LinFood, the source is available, so you, you will see where the stack trace happens as well as the source code that led up to it. You can also step through it, and it's not scary at all. Is there a situation where an exception happens that is happening within LinFu and we can't get in there to see what it is? Oh, no, no, no. no. Yeah. Um, there's you, the source code is completely out there. So okay. it, it's either you, you, you could step through it or you can just shoot me an email. And so just by, by using LinFu, you're not going to have some sort of debugging nightmare is what I guess I'm asking. Oh, right. absolutely not. I mean, okay. one of the things that is a little confusing at times, at least for me, for LinFu is that I have a lot of users, but I don't get that many complaints. So I'm not sure if I have like 10 users or nobody just complains. It might be both. Or it might be that it's just totally awesome and nobody's having any problems. Well, that's that's another possibility. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll, I'll go with that last option. Sounds better. Yeah. And I'm trying to understand the difference between what we're talking about here and good old-fashioned domain-specific languages. In what sense? Well, are we really just talking about turning C-sharp into a domain-specific language that you make the alterations you need to make to you know, have it behave the way you want it to. And effectively it's domain specific at that point. 
Well, th- this is where it gets a little meta. Is we're not really tying it to any specific domain. Right. We're actually just making it so that it's domain specific for the programmer. So it's basically whatever you want it to be. You're providing tools that can be used generally across multiple domains. And multiple languages. Maybe, Richard, are you asking, can the programmer modify C-sharp keywords to make it more domain-specific to their particular problem domain? Yeah, I'm thinking in general about the idea of modifying C-sharp, which my my gut reaction says this isn't a good idea, but I think Phil's made his point that there is reasons to do so. But, yeah, I guess it's the difference between changing existing keyword versus what I think of DSL is typically adding new keywords. Right. Specific to a domain. Hmm. Phil, have we totally lost? (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. I mean, I just, this is more than just adding keywords to a a specific language. I mean, when you talk about these DSLs that you typically have in C Sharp, Mm -hmm. what you really have is either a bunch of fluent interface calls that, for the most part, don't really change the language. Um, from what I've seen in a lot of fluid, fluid interface implementations, they put a lot of these verbose calls all over the place. Mm-hmm. And you've got these sentences that are like five or six keywords long, or, or they call it keywords, but it's basically method calls. Yeah. And or lambda hacks. And it looks nice because you could read it, but it doesn't really allow you to do more things. It's just, it just looks nice. <laughs> Well, it, it's coherent, right? Like, there's this idea that I'm reading in a language that makes sense in the domain. It's a lot less abstract, right? It, it's almost like self-documenting code. True, but, I mean, it's, 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 it's like that in practice, though, but, I mean, in theory, but in practice, I, I'd have to disagree. Um, but as far as DSLs go, they do have their uses. Mm-hmm. In terms of C-sharp, I'm not sure if that's the right language to actually be creating DSLs, given that the C-sharp language, by definition, is quite static. Mm -hmm. It rarely ever changes every few years. Well, and it's also a fairly terse language. So when you're you're tending towards this idea of using it very descriptively, it's kind of counter to what it's meant to be. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's reliable in the sense that it's static, but it's also... Um, static in the sense that you can't extend it. Except you figured out a way to extend it. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Grape City. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Boss comes and says, sales are up this week. I'm taking everybody out to lunch. Awesome. Next day, uh, we're taking a loss. What happened? Well, you're a developer. You can create a report, so you go to your boss and say, okay, what should I report on? And they have no idea. Well, here's the good news. Active analysis from Grape City Power Tools empowers your boss, the money guys, so they can find the answers to their own questions. And the best part is, it's a control. Completely self-contained BI. Using a drag-and-drop interface, users can easily discover trends in the data, and more importantly, the deviations from those trends through its powerful graphical analysis capabilities. Development against the control is easy. All you have to do is provide the data. Active analysis will take care of the aggregation, grouping, filtering, and sorting for the user. Of course, it offers programmatic control of all these operations, too. So if you want more company lunches, do your boss a favor. Use active analysis. For a free evaluation please go to gcpowertools.com slash analysis. And don't forget to thank Grape City for being a great sponsor of .NET Rocks. And that brings us to Nimerl. Is that how we pronounce it? It's Nemerly. Nemerly. Yeah. And uh, Nemerly is not my work. It's actually this very, very obscure programming language that runs on .NET. And uh, the thing about Nemerly that makes it so fascinating is that it has language features that aren't even available in C Sharp 5 or even the next versions of C Sharp, simply hmm. because of how it's built. 
And is it a C-ish language? Does it look like C-sharp? Yeah, uh, it's it's definitely, it has a, a lot of influence from C-sharp. So it for the most part, the code is interoperable with C-sharp. And th- these guys that wrote this compiler are even crazier than I am. And they actually used the language itself to create a compiler for C-sharp. So you could actually add a C-sharp file to a Nemerly project file mm. and it would, it would just compile the C-sharp as if it were part of the language. Wow. Yeah. I'm afraid. Yeah, I'm very afraid. <laughs> well, if you started with somebody wrote a, a C-sharp compiler on the side, right? Yeah. No, they actually, they, this is crazy because to prove the power of their language, they use their own language to define the grammar for C-sharp and then compile it using the grammar. You know, awesome. that's a lot of macaroni and cheese dinners. Hey, did you mention being broke before? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm still broke. <laughs> I was going to spend all your time writing compilers. What's the matter with you? <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! Hey, you know, I, I just love the code, man. Yeah, no, who could blame you for that? So th- these guys who who wrote this compiler, um, who are they? The Nemerly people. I have to apologize because I never really memorized their full name, so it, I always remember the username. So it's like Vlad D two or something. But it, but, but these basically are- they're guys that just did this in their spare time. Is this a open source language? Yes. Um, it's, it's, I think the license is BSD and these guys just keep hacking at it like crazy. Wow. And in terms of, if you were to line Nemerly up with the rest of the other .NET language, Nemerly is the equivalent of a bunch of Russian guys building a nuclear reactor in their basement. Yeah. On their that's what it sounds like. <laughs> uh, what could go wrong? Yeah. What could possibly go wrong with a nuclear reactor in your basement? Yeah. Um, but some of the stuff that they're actually doing with Nemerly is crazy because one of the big features in Nemerly is this idea that the compiler is the service and it's also extendable. The pipeline for the compiler is extendable. Mm. So it's, it's not like C sharp five where you've got these immutable trees that you can only read the, you could actually have these things called macros, which you allow you to build language features into the compiler as it's running. So you could do things like add keywords, you could add um, new operators, you could uh, change classes by inspecting the compiler's internal uh, DOM so Mm -hmm. that there's certain conventions that you could follow. And like, for example, one thing that's really, really useful for me and some of my projects is if I have a, uh, end unit test project and I have a class that ends with the word tests, then it should decorate that class with the end unit attributes and all public methods on that class should have the end unit test attribute. So what's interesting about this is when you look at the source code, you don't see any end unit attributes there. You don't see anything. You just see this class that says public class foo tests and you've got all these public methods that when you compile it and you look at the source code through IL spy, what happens is all of a sudden you have all these end unit attributes on there. And this is something yeah. that is not built into the language. And it goes deep enough to the point that language features such as if, if, if else, for, and even while statements are not a part of the language. They're just macros. Yeah, that's cra- that that is awesome, awesomely crazy. And so I'm thinking now, you would use Nemerly not for you know the, the language features of Nemerly, such as they are, but as a C sharp programmer to to make these conventions, like you're saying with testing. And you, you mentioned in your notes that in theory you could even use the async await features as macros. Yeah, actually it. All you would need to do to implement the async 
or await features is figure out how it's actually done in C sharp and then throw a macro together. And these macros are so powerful that you could actually take somebody else's code, find the exact location of where that code is, and then put it into these async await um, expansions, or basically how would you, this would be how would you write this yourself? And when you look at your code, you don't see it there and you still have these async and await keywords. But when it compiles, the compiler just bakes it in and throws your macros in. Mm. Um, the thing about Nemerly that really, really got my attention is it does the same kind of transformations that you would normally have to do with IL, mm. but it does it natively with the language. Wow. Powerful. It has features that C Sharp has only been talking about. We've, we've been talking about having it for years, but for one reason or the other, never really made it into the language. Like, for example, that designed by contract, that's a macro. Uh, AOP is also a macro. Um, non-nullable types, again, they're macros. But the amazing thing about this is that the language itself doesn't support this. This is something hmm. that uh, just shows up just by adding references to these assemblies. And the compiler extensibility is so tight that if you add a keyword to Nemerly, Intel, as soon as you import that reference to that compiler extension, IntelliSense actually shows the new keyword, uh, th that keyword that you just added, as a keyword that looks like it was part of the language. Wow. So what are you working on in Nemerly? Oh, of course it's IL, but what I'm doing is I'm actually writing my own version of CECL. Of oh, CECL, okay. Remind us what that is. CECL is this library for manipulating... Um, assemblies in .NET. So this is, it's basically reflection from scratch. Mm -hmm. uh, the difference with CECL and your standard run-of-the-mill system.reflection is that system.reflection is read-only. Uh, CECL, or this this thing I'm working on, which is called TAL, and we get into that in a sec. The thing about CECL is that you could change the anything about an assembly um, and like, for example, you change the types, you could add new classes, you could add new methods. Um, anything is pretty much open for extension in CSOL and you could do whatever you need to do with it. Uh, that normally wouldn't be allowed in system route reflection because they never really built it in there. Okay. So tell us about Tau. Well, Tau is this project that I've been working on. For quite a while now, I think it's been over a year and there have been a few stops and starts. But it's basically short for the Tau of metaprogramming in .NET. It's this ability to change um, not only programs that you, you write, but programs that you don't own. And I'm pretty confident with Nemerly that what I'm going to do is not use Tau to actually do something that's pretty much unheard of, which is this idea of a decompiler as a service. A decompiler a de as a service. It's it's this idea that, okay, if you've got something like Nemerly and it has the ability to natively create these extensions and these DSLs, then I should be able to use something like CISO or Tau to take any given assembly decompile it up to Nemerly and then change it and then write it back. So in theory, I should be able to take any sealed or normally inaccessible assembly, like for example, the base class library and change it to do whatever I need it to do. Now um, is an obfuscator powerless uh, in front of you? In other words, do you care if something has been obfuscated? Well, not really, because there's got to be some entry point where you actually know what it's what it's going to do. If if you could black box it, then obfuscation is is quite moot. Um, so we should be afraid of you 
basically. <laughs> if we want to deploy our assemblies and not have people look at them, we should not let them know about you. <laughs> well, in general, I, I, I use my, my powers for good. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't killed anybody yet. Oh, man. You know, it, it's it's a Spider-Man thing, you know? It's right. with great power comes great responsibility. Absolutely. And fortunately, I haven't killed anyone yet. And you believe that the users of uh, Tau will be as responsible? Well, I... I subscribe to the I, what is it? I A Y P ideology, which is I ain't your paw. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, if you are smart enough to figure out what these features do, then you should also be responsible for what you do with them. So, yeah, I mean, there might be some edge cases where it might blow up, but you've got this nice thing called reality that tells you. Mm-hmm. that what works and what doesn't. So I'm not too worried about restricting what other people can or can't do. Because even if I were to restrict them with whatever language that I'm working on, they're going to find some way to work around it. And indeed they have. Sure. I mean, sure. And that's always the case. If there's something that you don't provide in your language, someone like me is going to come along and just throw it in there because we actually do need it. Now, do you think um, Nemerly is is uh, suitable for use by mere mortals, or do you have to be uh, one of you aliens to a uh, Philip Laureano <laughs> to to get full use out of it? Well, it's pretty much usable by by anybody because the syntax it um, it's it's it looks like C sharp, but it has a mix of functional features that looks a lot like ML without the pain of having to switch to a functional language. Hmm. One of the reasons why I, I chose Nemerly over the more awesome language, which would probably be Clojure, is I can still read the syntax without having to do such a large shift. Hmm. I don't have to bury myself in parentheses, even though I know that everything leads back to Lisp. I mean, that's just the rule. But for demigod or lesser mortals, this Nemerly is pretty much usable because it does resemble C-sharp. You could use it just like you would C-sharp without the macros, and it would still just be as useful, but not as powerful, given that you could pretty much make your own domain-specific language by creating your own keywords, which would automatically be, be picked up by IntelliSense. And that's something that you can't do with, with C-sharp, at least not in the near future, because uh, fundamentally, Nemerly has this idea that, you know, I don't need to wait for the language authors to create something, because chances are there's already been a macro for that language feature, and it's already been written. Um, and if I go back to that example I gave with the n-unit unit tests, what's interesting about that is that I came up with this this extension called expects, which is this idea that whenever you write an end unit test, you always have to have this ugly expected exception keyword. But what if you could actually just extend the language so that when you declare a method, you say public foo test expects this type of exception. And then all of a sudden, the language is smart enough to throw in that attribute and be able to do these things for you that would be a, a huge burden on you if you were to have to type this out by hand. So with Nemerly, you no longer have to work around the language. The language works for you. And that's one thing that I haven't seen in any of the language right now because pretty much we have to wait for Microsoft or whatever your favorite vendor is to extend their language in order to do things. This right. with Nemerly you pretty much are the person that decides what language changes need to be done. Uh, there's no longer the syntax hacks that you do with C-sharp. You actually do create keywords that make it easier to read your program without having these long statements. It could be pretty much anything you want. And that's the power. It, it, it's, it's inverting 
the, the responsibility back onto you so you could do the job and just get it out of the way. And that's how I like it. In some ways, I think that then the question, you know, what comes next is uh, kind of moot, right? Once you're able to have this capability, there isn't a whole lot of next. It's up to you what comes next. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, I think that's the ultimate goal because our goal as, as programmers or as developers is to be able to get the, the computer to do what we want. Um, it's not necessarily to throw up obstacles because we, we think that people might screw up and sometimes they do. Yes, I admit that. But, but for the, for the people who actually have to get a job done, then you definitely need something that reduces the friction of writing your applications. And something like this would definitely reduce the friction because it follows you and you don't have to necessarily work around it. Right. So uh, we're just about done. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention um, before we before we call it a show? Yeah, actually, I wanted to mention that Redify is hiring. So if we're really looking for the best of the best, so and we've got a whole lot of MVPs in our company. I think we have like eleven MS MVPs, and we're looking for the best and the brightest. So if you really want to try, give Australia a shot, or just try working in a better job market, then email me. It's philip.loniano at redify.net, and we'll put you through the process, and we'll see how it goes. All right, Philip, thank you very much. And, Thanks uh, a lot. Keep doing those crazy things that you do. I'm sure that uh, you have a lot of fans now on the, in the .NET Rocks listener camp. Yeah, you'll be hearing from me very soon. Thanks a lot, guys. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 